are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. So Kim, on, on the subject of um, Asia and geopolitics, let's head over to Myanmar because you were just there recently as well. What are your thoughts? What makes uh, Myanmar an attractive or unattractive destination for investors? I, I've heard that you provide a very interesting perspective on that and love for you to share that to the audience. Well, I think Myanmar will be, before I went, I, I heard stories about how this, you know, Myanmar will be in 20 years what Thailand is today or, or Indonesia. I, and I don't know. I think Myanmar has enormous opportunity when you look at the size of the market, when you look at the natural resources, clearly there's enormous opportunity. But this is a country that's, that was kept behind a dark curtain for a good 50 years. The legal infrastructure is in shambles. It's a weird mix of socialism and, and residues of the British system and all sorts of other things that the uh, Burmese generals threw in there. Threw in there, the education system is is in huge trouble. And what that means is that this might sound parochial, but nobody speaks English. So few people speak English, and unfortunately, English is the language of investment. And if I'm a potential investor and I need to go there and hire local people, it's extremely difficult to find people. The infrastructure is is poor at best prices for things like houses and office space is absolutely astronomical. It's more expensive than in New York or Tokyo. And the domestic politics, I think, still have a a very long way to sort themselves out before someone can sit down and say, okay, now this is a country that I can more or less feel comfortable with doing business with. The uh, U.S. and the West had imposed sanctions on uh, on Myanmar for a long time and they were largely lifted about two years ago. Right. The reality there though is that there are somewhere around a hundred individuals on a blacklist that Western investors cannot deal with. And <laughs> the fact is that these hundred people are probably two thirds of the people who you, who as a full investor you would want as your partner because they are the people who understand how things work, they have the right relationships in government, but because they were associated with the former military regime, the uh, EU and the, and the U.S. have said, no, you cannot right. deal with these people. So sanctions have been lifted, but not really. Interestingly, um, I've also heard, uh, Kim, that countries like Iran is also looking for more bilateral trade partners are uninterested to trade with countries like uh, Myanmar due to their treatment of the Muslim population within Myanmar. That's, that was a very interesting observation I made because a country like Iran is very desperate to look for trading partners and is unable to do so based on a country that should be or perceived to be as attractive. But once you hear about the, the treatment of Muslims within there, then we've seen some kind of pullback from, from the Middle East. But I guess that's not going to play a big factor, considering many people are perceiving countries like China are going to play a big role. But if you actually take a look at the FDI figures uh, into Myanmar from China, they're actually on a dramatic decline for some reason. 
But, you know, aside from all these bearish perspectives, uh, throughout the Mekong region here, there's a lot of people saying, Kim, that, look, at the end of the day, their market, stock market, actually, is going to be growing and it's going to be a significant pivot point for investors going forward in the future. And basically, tons of funds, foreign funds, are clamoring to build some kind of presence as we speak. Now, I've, I've seen the history in which uh, people like George Bush actually were in Vietnam to anchor in the opening of the stock markets in the year 2000. And since then, you've had, say, a VN index of, say, 100 points all the way up to the current prices where the market is today, and which is a several hundred-fold increase from an investor's perspective. So I guess the question for you, Kim, is... Despite all of these issues and and concerns and potential sanctions and blacklists and limited trading partners and decline of FDI, in terms of public investments and the fact that that market is going to open and, and more companies are going to become listed does that not counterbalance or, or bring some balance to the relatively bearish view that we've been discussing about? Yes, I think that if you are a private equity investor with a high tolerance for <laughs> for losing a lot of money for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, but you have that that well that, that vision that you just described, and also I think if you say you know what, there's no way that Myanmar is going to be in 20 years is going to be what Thailand or Indonesia is today. I think it'll take I don't know two generations what do i know but i can't imagine things moving that quickly because you don't have well like i said you don't have the legal infrastructure you don't have the human capital right and you don't have the political will and you don't have a a kind of population that that is i don't know it's coming from a different space because they were blocked off from the rest of the world for so long so i guess short answer yes possibly but I don't think the, I mean, in terms of the local stock exchange, when you look at the, if I'm a, a local company that I, and I want to list on the local stock exchange, I would most likely need a, at least three years of financial statements. Yeah. I don't know how many companies in the country have that, except for companies that are very close to the military dictatorship who mm-hmm. foreign investors probably wouldn't be able to invest in any way. When I was there, there was talk of the of the stock exchange, but the talk was more about how the preliminary deadlines were going to be pushed back substantially. Really? So, yeah, yeah, there was not much enthusiasm. I'm not. I'm sorry. No, there was not much expectation that it would all come together. Right. So, I don't know if perhaps yes, but I think if if time and life and money is finite, I think I would focus more on the on other markets yeah. that are more evolved that do have more infrastructure and yes you might miss out on the 2000% but that 2000% will come from such a small investment and it will take you so long to get there I'd probably prefer to focus on the 20 to 50% per year yeah. in bigger markets where yeah. you can Go where capital is treated best, right? I think that's one of the key takeaways, and that's why we're talking about all these markets. So let's talk about Thailand for a few minutes. You were also there recently. I I try to help you set up some meetings there. Yeah. Um, What are your thoughts on Thailand? And uh, I know you couldn't have as much fun as you would like because you were on curfew when you were there. 
Yeah, I think uh, you know it's funny when you when you read about coups in Thailand and, and just the most recent coup, and you look at the front page of the Wall Street Journal and you see angry protesters shaking their fists in the faces of police who are holding up these huge plastic shields. You think, wow, this is a country that must be just on the edge and just you know teetering on the brink of absolute you know death and destruction. And you go there, and of course. Bangkok is is a buzzing modern city with sparkling shopping malls and everything else. And uh, <laughs> you don't see a single protester. You don't see a single policeman the entire time in the midst of supposedly this this uh, this big political well the coup and everything else that went along with it. So I think that it's a, a market that is not immune to political risk. Obviously, but local investors certainly have learned to just push through, and international investors who sell because of concern about that. Um, there's always a willing local buyer. I think in the, uh, I think you you look at a lot of markets, a lot of countries, and they, uh, the economies thrive, ir- irrespective of the political system. And Thailand may well be one of those that without getting into the, the messiness of the red shirts and the yellow shirts and the king and everybody else, but maybe one of those countries that thrives despite having a, an extremely messy political environment. It's, it's almost kind of like buy the rumor, sell the facts uh, for Thailand, in which every time these coups happen, a few days later, if the exchange is active, an investor or trader comes in and starts buying the equities hand over fist. And they do quite well. Exactly. Very much so. What's really interesting I've seen, and I just took a look at this briefly, was that, believe it or not, Thailand is now raising debt in countries like uh, Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar. Some of these have been previous, some of these countries have been previous rivals to Thailand, which makes it very interesting as well. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or or thoughts on the impact they can have. One perception or view of Thailand is that they can try to become an economic hub within the Mekong region, which is Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, and Thailand, probably more adequately positioned than a country like Singapore or a city-state like Singapore. Hmm. I think that, that would make sense if some degree, I think, though, that ultimately the biggest companies will always gravitate toward those places where they can raise capital more easily and more cheaply. Right. And no matter what Thailand does, no matter what the local capital market does, Singapore is always going to be bigger. There's always going to be more money there, more investors there. So if I'm a mid-sized company in Cambodia and I can, right now, I have a relationship and with a within Thailand and raise capital there. That might be fine, but once I grow to be a a truly large company in a, in a regional context, I'm going to look toward the larger market. Right. right. So it might be step so which which would be fine. I think from what you you're describing, I think that might make a lot of sense. Okay. But, so outside of Thailand, let, let's talk about Mongolia. Kim, what is going on in Mongolia and and how can investor like what should investors be thinking right now you know we we've seen significant declines as all most major indices have actually increased in the last few years what's going on there i know you were there so share to us the audience about all of this 
Yes, Mongolia is a, uh, it's all of 3 million people, but it's potentially enormously wealthy because of its uh, coal and its copper primarily. About five years ago, it started to become a, uh, a sort of uh, flavor of the day frontier market. The tiny stock market moved up something like 500% in a matter of a year and a half. And the country was really uh, working hard to attract investment. And one of its biggest, well, by far its largest investor was um, global miner Rio Tinto, yeah. which invested in a, in a copper mine that could become the world's largest copper mine. What subsequently happened is that uh, Mongolia's, uh, well, one of Mongolia's large neighbors, it's sandwiched right between Russia and China, of course, and the Chinese National Coal Company tried to buy a large Mongolian coal mining company. And the Mongolian government was up in arms. The uh, nationalists came out of the woodwork and said, we cannot have the Chinese buying our, our uh, crown, our, uh, our assets like this. So the government passed some sort of regulation that was supposed to only stem or to prevent this transaction from happening. It wound up having the effect of blocking pretty much all foreign investment. In, uh, in Mongolia. So suddenly, within a matter of a year, FDI fell by more than 50%. Right. All of the, not all of the, the investment that had gone along with Rio Tinto's initial investment um, in terms of the service providers, in terms of other smaller mining companies that took this as a good sign, things were moving in the right direction in Mongolia. All, uh, so much of that left very quickly. And the way it is, as you, as you said, capital goes where it's treated best. And investors also investors often have a short memory but in this sort of thing they also do have a long memory right. and what is still uh, stark in the minds of a lot of potential investors in Mongolia is that the government did this and if they did this once they might do it again now a year after they passed this legislation a new government came in and said alright we clearly made a big mistake we want to reverse all of this so please come back <laughs> um, they said to, uh, to foreign investors and it hasn't happened yet I think the key driver there is Rio Tinto coming to an agreement with the government of Mongolia for the next stage of development of this massive copper mine. Right. Rio Tinto has already invested something like $6 billion, and it's been in negotiations to invest. Well, stage two is supposed to be somewhere around $4.2, $4.5 billion. And it hasn't happened, and everyone's been waiting. In the meantime, the currency has been weakening. Foreign investment has stayed away. FDI has continued to fall. The stock market uh, has been drifting downward. Yeah. And just a few weeks ago, the prime minister was uh, was fired, and a new prime minister is coming in. And there's talk that a grand coalition of uh, the majority and the opposition will... Uh, will come together and the new prime minister has a very good reputation amongst investors. So I think there's a lot of hope that things might finally be coming together. But I think that a lot of people have been expecting and hoping that for a while now. So, so, so just to recap for Mongolia is that we need to be looking for throughout the news wires about an agreement signed with Rio Tinto and Mongolia and we need to keep an eye on the current president and how he accommodates uh, foreign investors to some extent. Yes, I think the uh, 
Yeah, the current prime minister exactly signs that he actually is going to move forward with the agenda that investors hope he's going to move forward with. Um, yeah, and the day that this this uh, deal is signed will be a, I think, a very big deal. Now, are so foreign in- investors able to invest into Mongolia? I know there's a lot of close-end funds, and you know, ha- having been here in frontier markets, is sometimes I get very frustrated with close-end funds. You tend to see. Uh, astronomical NAVs discount relative to price and many of these assets are going into things such as like real estate or mining companies where the valuation can be relatively ambiguous so what's an investor to do from this perspective well you could um, open a local account and invest in local shares on the Mongolian stock exchange if you don't want to do that there are a few traded companies in, uh, in New York and in and on the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange. Right. The main company that will benefit from Rio Tinto signing this deal is 51% owned by uh, Rio Tinto. It's called Turquoise Hill Resources. TRQ is the, uh, the ticker on the New York Stock Exchange. Right. And that's, well, that will be the main beneficiary, I think, of, of this deal finally being signed. Uh, there there's also go, some event-driven speculation for any of you. Guys. Oh, exactly, <laughs> right there. So, thank, thanks. This sounds terrific. Final country on our world tour, Kim. We've we've been everywhere, right? We've been to Russia, Mongolia, Iran, Thailand. Let's uh, finish this off with your uh, most recent trip, which was to Venezuela. The markets are fantastic, right? The last two years, what up? 40% since uh, June so far. Um, we, But the issue is that there's a lot of inflation. So what, what's the story there about Venezuela? Uh, Venezuela is fascinating. I think it's probably one of the, I don't know, it's the most screwed up country. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> the, uh, Even more also, so than Argentina? Oh, Argentina is a Swiss clock compared to Venezuela, <laughs> which is how which is which is really saying something yeah. Venezuela has either three or four exchange rates depending on how you count them right and the difference if you go to the air if you land and you you exchange money at the airport you get 12 bolivars to your dollar right and if you go into town and you know somebody who knows somebody that needs dollars you can get a uh, hundred dollars a uh, hundred bolivars to your dollar mm-hmm. now and that's a, obviously an, an eightfold difference. That's huge. And that was a hundred a few weeks ago when I was in Venezuela. As of a few days ago, it had right. moved to 125. So the black market rate had depreciated another 25 percent relative to the, to the dollar in a matter of weeks. And when earlier, Peter, you were talking about how people tend to people try to find ways around impediments to the free movement of capital. Yeah. And I've never seen so many examples of that as you see in Venezuela. There are entire industries that exist, entire millions of people who earn a living by playing these differences in the exchange rates. Mm. Because if you if you can get your bolivars to at 120 or 100 bolivars to the dollar, Venezuela is incredibly cheap. You can you can eat out. Two people have all the food, all the drink you want, and it will cost you $15. On the other hand, if you get bad exchange rate, it's very expensive. Right. So 
people will break their backs to get the better exchange rate. And there are all sorts of ways they can do that one way or the other. So like many of the economies we discussed about earlier, it sounds like obviously Venezuela is very dependent on oil, uh, which accounts for over 90% of their exports. With the price of oil declining the way that it is, how should investors perceive this? And also, are they eating a lot of McDonald's? Because as you know, we were talking about getting some exposure throughout South America. And uh, I was telling you about one of the holdings that I like, which is Arco, that has the master franchise license to McDonald's. So great to hear your observations when you're there. Well, the problem with having any sort of business in Venezuela is you can't get your money out. Yeah. And if you want to fly American Airlines to Caracas, there's only one flight a day from Miami. There, there were there used to be seven or eight flights a day, and American Airlines cut back on its business in Venezuela because it can't get its money out because of the foreign exchange regime. Right. So. From an investment perspective, oh, the, you mentioned the, uh, the stock market. I think the, well, for one thing, for a foreigner to invest in the Caracas Stock Exchange, I think would be foolhardy at best because you can't get your money out. Right. And getting money in is difficult. What sort of exchange rate would you get? Uh-huh. And the market is quite illiquid, and it's a way that domestic investors try to hedge themselves against inflation. Uh, Venezuela has the world's highest highest inflation at sixty three percent a year. Um, at least that's a proof of concept that um, stock markets are an excellent hedge on inflation. Yes, it is. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> um, so, how can we get some synthetic exposure if if we really believe that look, inflation is going to continue? Um, and the markets are going to reflect that in some shape or form and hold, say, for example, U.S. dollar in the process. You know, the only the, – the, uh, the government nationalized the only um, companies that had any, uh, any foreign traded stock. There's – I think that when you look at the incredible desperation of the country, I think it's inevitable that if the price of oil remains low – that uh, Venezuela will default on its on its uh, sovereign bonds. Oh dear! I don't. Uh, the politics are incredibly intricate, and it's very difficult to see how Venezuela emerges from where it is now. Mm-hmm. And you know, as a investor, you're always looking for the shaft of light you're looking for the way the catalyst that no one else appreciates in Venezuela I really don't see that I think if you really wanted to get exposure you should take a vacation there and go to the beach and live like a king on your dollars the only problem is it's one of the most dangerous countries in the world Caracas has the highest murder rate of any any major city thievery robbery you name it it's incredibly <laughs> dangerous so it's not exactly a tourist magnet. And, and there are no real side from, from the Syria that you mentioned. Um, uh, there are very few ways of getting any sort of equity uh, portfolio. Very few ways of getting any sort of portfolio investment uh, access to it. Right, right. Well, thanks, Kim. I mean, this has been a very interesting conversation. I, I guess I just want to end this by getting an overall perspective. I mean, you've been everywhere in the world. 
what have you identified in terms of investing? Like, how have you crafted some kind of edge in some shape or form by looking at all these countries, taking into account uh, the macro picture, even the micro picture? Well, what can investors or traders take away from all of this? Well, focusing on markets that are out of favor makes a lot of sense. The uh, Because we've seen history has proven repeatedly that investors and markets overreact and if you find those markets that suffer from excessive and negative sentiment or valuations are accordingly low and you do have some patience and some stomach for volatility because you're never going to pick the bottom and you might be 25% off you might be 50% off but if you anticipate that in a say a three-year time horizon some of these markets are going to move up to four ten times I think that it makes a whole lot of sense. I think it's a question of finding those markets and finding securities in those markets that aren't going to be too volatile. I think Argentina is particularly interesting just because elections next year are a clear catalyst for change. I think I was recently in, a, in Macau, which is a, a, well, it's one of the wealthiest, it's not a country, but one of the wealthiest areas of the world. But gambling stocks have gotten absolutely slaughtered there. <laughs> and that was interesting in, in other ways. I think when you do look at a market like Russia, there are some selective opportunities, Mongolia also. So I think that overall, if just to get back to your question, I think that this approach makes a lot of sense if you want to add a little bit of, of um, rocket fuel to a certain percentage of your portfolio and you don't do it with the rent money and you fully almost expect to lose 50% before you uh, before anything good happens. Wow, that, that's um, some serious volatility. But typically when you have volatility, you're going to receive pretty big gains at the end of the day. That is right. That's the only reason to, to even double in it. Exactly. That's the name of the game. Well, thanks, Kim. It, it was fantastic talking to you. Hopefully we can catch up sometime in the not-too-distant future to hear about your fascinating journeys around the world. You're kind of like the Indiana Jones of investing. Mm. <laughs> thanks, Peter. Okay. Thanks for having me on your show. Okay. Thanks. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 